0: Church, let's pray together. Father, as the words of the song we've just heard declare to God be the glory. And we ask as the song we sang right before that, God, speak, O Lord. We ask that you would, as we come to you. Father, would you speak to us now through your word for your glory? Because it all belongs to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, church, if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to Luke's record of the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts, chapter 11, and find verse 19, Acts eleven nineteen. 19. Last week, in our examination of the church's defining marks, as we're calling them, those things without which church can't be a church, so the church's essentials, if you will, Last week we studied Peter's first letter, chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, and we concluded that the church isn't a building, but a people, holy people, not a worthy people, but a pitied or mercied people, people to whom God has shown mercy, not independent people, but a possessed people, those who are God's possession and who are royal priests with a divine purpose. To abstain from sin and bring glory to God. So one mark of the church as we've seen to date is holy people. And the second is the ordinances. And about two weeks ago, if you were with us, we had the privilege of celebrating the ordinance of baptism. The first of the two that also marked the church. Such that should a gathering of holy people not perform baptism or celebrate the Lord's Supper, the other ordinance, then they would cease to be the church. Now... In our examination of these marks to date, I've pointed out several times how from 1,200 or about 1,200 years, the definition of church existed drawn from the first ecumenical council that had met in Nicaea in 325 AD, which did not build upon or draw from making use of these elements. The Nicene Creed described the church as being one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Specific in a spiritual sense, right? But also very general, practically speaking. Such that by the 16th century, the church had become so corrupted that a group of theologians began a reforming movement set on, among other things, redefining the church around something more concrete. The gospel. So men like Martin Luther and John Calvin believed that wherever the word of God, the gospel, was preached confessed and acted upon, there was the church, even if there were only two or three gathered. The reformers, as I've explained, didn't reject the Nicene Creed's ecclesial categories of unity, holiness, universality, and apostolic teaching per se. They simply believed they weren't sufficiently clear to guard against abuses. Thus, as the patristic fathers, church fathers, had done in Nicaea in the fourth century, the reformers did in Heidelberg. In the 16th, commissioned by the elector Frederick III, the Heidelberg Catechism was composed to clarify the Protestant church's beliefs, to correct misunderstandings which had arisen, and to instruct new Christians as to who they were and what they were called to do. So completed in 1563, and addressing the misunderstanding concerning the church, the catechism's 54th question asks this, what do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church. In other words, what's meant by this spiritually significant but practically vague expression with the answer being given? We believe that the Son of God, through His Spirit and Word, out of the world, out of the world... I lost my place. Out of the world, to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for Himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community, we are and all will be living members. And so, like we saw last week, the church is people, people whom Christ has called to himself by his spirit through his word. Where? The significance of this word, this gospel, is made even clearer in the catechism's subsequent question asked, what do you understand by the communion of saints? Where the answer is that believers, one and all, as members of this community, share in Christ and in all his treasures and gifts. And so capturing the, the centrality of the living word, who is Jesus, to the existence of the church, the Heidelberg Catechism is, is simply one example of many confessions that came out of the Reformation, the Westminster, the 1st London, the 2nd London, the Philadelphia Confession, which just so you know was the 1st Baptist Confession on the continent written in 1744. But all of these reflect the truth, this belief in the church's principal mark being the gospel, the message of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And it's this mark, friends, that we're going to examine together now as it's addressed in Acts 11, which hopefully everybody's found. So let me invite you to follow along as I read for us now. Acts 11. Beginning in verse 19, Luke writes, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he would found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught Great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And may God bless the public reading of his word. Church, to establish, to establish our text's setting for those who may be unfamiliar with the gospel's spread as documented by Luke the doctor, Acts begins where Luke's gospel ends, Christ's ascension. As Jesus returned to the Father, he left his followers with the command to remain in Jerusalem and to await the promised Holy Spirit by whom they would be empowered to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And so Acts begins with Christ's promise to his disciples that they were to be the vessels, the vessels by which the gospel was to make its way to every nation, tongue, and tribe. And In obedience to their Lord's command, the disciples returned to Jerusalem where they selected a replacement for Judas before beginning their wait for the one whom Christ had said was to arrive in a few days. That's Acts 1 verse 5. And then chapter 2 documents the Holy Spirit's coming at Pentecost, the Jewish harvest celebration that occurred some 50 days after the Passover, following which Peter proclaimed the gospel and a great harvest was Reaped. There were some 3,000 were added to their number that day. That's Acts 2.41. Immediately then, Luke tells us that this infant church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So that's the word of God, the gospel, and to the fellowship. So there's the people of God, to the breaking of bread. So there's the supper, right? The reference to the ordinances of God and to prayer the worship of God, and as they shared with others, Luke concludes chapter 2 by saying how the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Unfortunately, this body grew content where they were. Despite initial opposition from the Sanhedrin, the apostles performed miracles, healing many, and quickly became highly regarded by the people, as Luke notes in chapter 5 and verse 13. Notwithstanding the fact that soon no one else dared join them due to their stigma, they appear to have been quite happy. The church was content, it seems, to, with life and with ministry in the city. They were obeying Christ's call to be witnesses. Only they got stuck in the first phase, didn't they? Jerusalem. There was no Judea and, and Samaria happening until the persecution that we see mentioned in our text that occurred in connection with Stephen. Now, I'm sure that many of us are likely familiar with Stephen, the first of seven deacons selected by the apostles who were known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Stephen served the church by caring for its most vulnerable members. Luke records in chapter 6, verse 8, how Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power, and he did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. However, he, like Peter and John before him, he attracted opposition and And following a gospel sermon that was delivered to the Sanhedrin, which Luke records in chapter 7, he was murdered with one particularly prominent participant present, giving approval It's the man that we see named in our text today, Saul. And following Stephen's martyrdom, Luke observes chapter 8 in Acts, how a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered, get this, throughout Judea and Samaria. That's Acts 8, verse 1. So Stephen's death, it seems, served to remind the church of its purpose, Christ-given purpose of being witnesses. And thus, when we read here in our text, chapter 11, verse 19, when we read of those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen, we can know that Luke is describing the Jerusalem church finally getting on mission were the first witnessing focused specifically on those whom they shared the most in common with, so fellow Jews. However, some, Luke tells us, remain unnamed, although we know what they did. They hailed from Cyprus, that's all we know, just like Barnabas did. But they began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And Luke says that the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And friends, it's right there that I believe we see a first point for us this morning as regards our focus in this series, and that is that the gospel reconciles us to God. The gospel reconciles us to God. because you notice what it is that these evangelists proclaim? Our NIV reads, the good news about the Lord Jesus. If you have an ESV translation, the ESV reads, Preaching the Lord Jesus preaching the Lord Jesus as does the NASB literally the original language of the New Testament employs a verb form here of the noun that we interpret as gospel and so it literally reads gospeling the Lord Jesus gospeling the Lord Jesus and friends i believe that this reveals at least two things for us with the first being the good news's subject the good news's subject is Jesus And it's a subject that consists of more than just a name because as verse 19 reads there in our Bibles, the Jerusalem church who first engaged their fellow Jews shared with them the message. You see that term there in verse 19? Circle it if you have a pencil or a pen. The message, that's how the NIV reads, message. The ESV offers very little variance but gives speaking the word, the word. And that's actually a little closer to the original because it captures what in the original Greek is the term logos. The word which John tells us in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, was in the beginning with God, and in fact, was God. He was with God in the beginning, and the word, this logos, John writes, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, John continues, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So who's this word that John is writing about? It's Jesus, right? Because John continues, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So who, who's this word, this, this logos, this message per our NIV here in Acts 11, 19? He's Jesus Christ. He's the good news's subject. But second, he's the good news's source. John adds in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 18, No one's ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Friends, Jesus isn't just a man who came from God, as John says, full of grace and truth. He isn't simply Mary's son, born in Bethlehem, crucified in Jerusalem. He is God, the one and only. As the Nicene Creed reads, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light. True God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come with glory To judge the living and the dead, his kingdom will never end. Amen? Friends, this this is who the scattered Jerusalem church preached. They preached the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The message which, if you were with us, we saw two weeks ago is most succinctly, I believe, summarized in 1 Corinthians 15.3, where Paul explained that what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. This is the message. This is the message that Paul then exhorted the Roman church to preach. Why? Because everyone, he said, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And as the Scripture says, he even references the Scriptures themselves in support of his point. The Scripture says anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Only he then laments, how can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, Paul, quoting Isaiah 52.7, continues, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And friends, the church brought that good news to Antioch and they proclaimed it with the result being, as Luke documents there in verse 21 of our text, the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Believed. What did they believe? They believed the gospel that in the beginning God created everything that is and he saw that it was very good. He made everything to reflect His glory and perfection, with the pinnacle of His creation being people who shared His very image. But, tragically, they rejected God's commands. They rebelled against His rule, sought to be their own gods. Where before, only life and light had existed. Now, death and darkness marred creation. Separated from the only one in whom is life, people now face the horror of their self-sought independence. Incapable of being as God is, no matter how hard they tried, life promised nothing but suffering, ending in death. But God, who is rich in mercy, set in motion his rescue plan, which he had purposed from before he spoke all that is into being, revealing how his gospel was not a response to failure, but a purposed self-revelation, demonstrating the supremacy of his love. The totality of His mercy, perfection of His peace, beauty of His grace, and eternality of His glory. As He, the God of the universe, became as one of His creation. He took on our sinful, broken flesh, but never sinned. He perfectly fulfilled God's commands, thus meriting relationship with God. He then took upon Himself our sin and shame and bore our punishment, death, Dying on a cross, he was buried in a tomb for three days before he defeated death in a glorious resurrection, demonstrating his satisfaction of God's just wrath for his people's sin before extending to those who confess their sin and believe his righteousness so that they might once again be in a relationship with him. So what did they believe? Those Hellenists in Antioch, they believed that they were sinful and that they were without hope for life after death. They believed that they couldn't merit relationship with God and that those that they created for them to serve them weren't God's at all. They believed that God himself had worked salvation for them by coming in the person of Jesus Christ. They believed that he was both God and man, fully God and fully man. He died on a cross for their sin before rising again. And now he's at the Father's right hand interceding for them until the time when he will return And all the world, as we know it, will come to an end. And on that day, every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Friends, that's what they believed. Do you? Have you recognized your sin? Have you admitted it? Because we're so good at making excuses, aren't we? And we love to point fingers at others and try to justify our behavior. And while we can get away with it, sort of, for now, one day we're going to stand before the judge, the judge, and there won't be anyone else to answer for my actions but me. Have you admitted that you're a sinner? Have you confessed your sin to God, asked for his forgiveness? And have you believed in Jesus for your salvation? And I pray that if you haven't, that today, today might be that day. For those in Antioch who did, they found themselves reconciled to God and united to Christ. That's our second point for this morning. The gospel unites us to Christ. And I believe that this point and that which follows isn't exegetically derived from our passage so much as it's spiritually implied. By the authenticity of the Antiochians' conversion experience, which I believe is communicated in verse 22. And so let me explain. When Luke writes, news of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw evidence of the grace of God, when he arrived and saw evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encourage them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Church, what other evidence, visible, able-to-be-seen evidence of God's grace could Luke have meant here than the gospel's physical manifestation in the lives of those who believed, thereby attesting to the reality of their salvation, right? And church, I believe that this gospel expression is addressed in at least two places, at least two places in the Scriptures, in ways that are helpful to our discussion of the Gospel uniting us to Christ this morning. With the first being Paul's letter to the Galatians. The first being Paul's letter to the Galatians. And we've just finished studying Galatians. So these verses ought to sound familiar to many. But in Galatians 3, verse 26, Paul reminds the churches. He says that you are all sons and daughters of God through faith, In Christ Jesus. So this is the gospel. This is belief in the gospel as was physically evidenced in Antioch, attested to by Barnabas according to Luke. And Paul continues, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. So here's the gospel uniting us with, into Christ. Christ, we're being brought into union, the Galatians were being brought into union with Christ Jesus by grace through faith, and then Paul writes this, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Emmanuel, what I believe Paul captures here with this expression of spiritual unity through the gospel is also a physical unity physical unity marked by the absence of categories which otherwise would have divided the church. In other other words, Paul was challenging, as he wrote to the church, he was challenging the Galatian churches to display the unity for which he, Jesus, had prayed when he asked the Father in John's Gospel, chapter 17, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them, Jesus continued, the glory you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So what Paul was describing there in Galatians 3, it wasn't Merely a a spiritual reality wrought by God's grace through faith in Jesus. It was also a physically manifested Christ-exalting unity that defied explanation. And friends, I believe that that gospel grace, this gospel grace may be seen here in our midst. Because we're one. Now, we aren't uniform, as is abundantly clear as you look around the room. We don't all look the same dress the same, share the same interests and tastes. But we do have Christ in common. And therefore, we have a unity that overcomes the petty divisions that so often are associated with age and style that mar so many of the churches in our country. And so as Barnabas visited Antioch, I believe he saw clear gospel unity, which could only be the result of the church's unity in Jesus. So that's the first evidence that I see of the gospel uniting us to Christ implied here in our text. The second is given us by Christ Jesus himself. And that's recorded in John's gospel when prior to his prayer for unity, which I referenced just a moment ago in chapter 17, prior to that prayer, he declared in chapter 13, verse 34, words I would imagine are familiar to many, a new command I give to you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, what? All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then just moments later, he continues, Jesus continues, if you love me, you will obey me. You will obey what I command. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. Jesus says, my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. But he who does not love me, will not obey my teachings. For Christ, who's the church's head, right? those who are his, those who have believed the gospel and are united to him, those who are his according to Jesus, they will love each other and obey his commands. And thus, when Barnabas arrived in Antioch, I believe what he observed was this, Tangible evidence of the gospel as those who'd heard the message of Christ and believed now loved each other as Christ had loved them. And they were living in obedience to his commands. And Emmanuel, as we consider this mark of the church, I'm again so encouraged as your pastor because I believe that we are growing in our appreciation of who we are in Christ. We're demonstrating our love for one another. It's a love that reflects Christ's love, which means it doesn't merely fixate on meeting the needs of those who belong to our family, but it demonstrates concern for anything and everything that would impact our union with Christ, meaning sin. Friends, we take sin seriously. Why? Because Jesus did. He died so that we might be free from sin, and therefore we can't live in it any longer, and and whenever we see a brother or sister struggling, we're getting better at making an effort to come alongside of them, as Paul wrote in Galatians, assisting them, helping them, and restoring them. The gospel proclaimed in Antioch reconciled people to God, uniting them to Christ, and allowing them to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's our final point as regards this mark of the church. The gospel allows us to be indwelt by the Spirit the gospel allows us to be indwelt by the spirit. And as I said before, I believe that this truth is also an implication of the authenticity of the Antiochian's conversion. For where Luke notes there of Barnabas, he was a good man, full of the holy spirit and faith. I believe is revealed that the effectiveness so that I believe the effectiveness of Barnabas's ministry in Antioch and his depth of connection to that church, I believe that's revealed as they're both tied to the Holy Spirit. And it appears that Luke also believed so because he offers Barnabas's spirit filling as the cause for the great number of people who were brought to the Lord. Now, our NIV, regrettably, it leaves out that causative for here. And it makes this intention harder to see. But if you have an ESV translation, it provides that causative for. And so verse 24 reads in the ESV, for, or we could say Because, because he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, a great many people were added to the Lord. And in further support of the second implication, I'm confident that the Holy Spirit's indwelling of the new believers in Antioch would have had to have fallen under the things that Barnabas would have seen as evidence of God's grace resulting from their belief in the gospel. Because, as Paul would later write to the Galatians, as we've seen, and this is now Saul, the Saul of the text here for us Paul the apostle writing to the Galatians would attest to the presence of the spirit how by the visibility of his fruit in church the holy spirit's presence the holy spirit's presence is essential to Christ's body the church because Paul later explains to the Ephesians the holy spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. In other words, if you haven't believed the gospel, been reconciled to God, united to Christ, if you have, then you have also received the Holy Spirit. He now lives in you, convicting you of sin, opening your eyes to the depth of your need and to the riches of God's grace. As the Heidelberg Catechism teaches, He, as well as the Father and the Son, is eternal God. He has been given to us personally so that by true faith He makes us share in Christ and all His blessings. He comforts us and remains with us forever. Is your body the temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you live with an ever-increasing sensitivity to all that is opposed to God and His holiness? Or do you find yourself drawn to and participating in sinful, shameful activities without guilt? Do you hunger for holiness to study God's word and to fellowship with his people? Or would you rather stay home and watch TV or be on the golf course? Friends, if the church is to be the church, as we've seen, if the church is to be the church, it must be holy people holy people made so because they have heard the gospel, believed the gospel, been baptized, demonstrating their identification with the gospel, and who are now living in light of the gospel. And friends, I pray that if you belong to Christ's church, particularly you who call yourself a Christian, that you have a place where you belong. Because as our text concludes, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, you are God. And you sent your son, Jesus, to redeem us, to be our savior. Jesus, who is the head of the church, we who are his bride, so described. Father, thank you for how you make clear how you bring us to life in yourself by grace, through faith, in this gospel message of Jesus. Father, this is a work that you accomplish and that you accomplish for your glory as it draws all attention to the fame, to the renown of the one who worked this for us freely at the greatest cost so that you might be glorified, God, and we might enjoy the greatest good. Father, thank you for how you make your people belong, family. And we praise you, God, for your family here where we seek to live in light of these gospel truths, being a holy people made so by your grace through faith in your gospel. God, as we seek to live out this gospel, God, in covenant with one another, Lord, we thank you for those who you have brought here to make Emmanuel Baptist Church. Lord, and we ask that you would continue to see fit to bless this church by being present, being being, being a part of and using this church as your instruments to live this gospel out, that the unity that we have and that the love that we share and the obedience that we evidence would attest to you and not to anything in us. Father, this is our prayer, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.